The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash the Folklore Podcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Alpine folklore has been gaining in popularity over the last few years, and in particular, much of this seems to be due to the figure of the Krampus. In the UK, the US, and in many other places, we are finding the Krampus going through a process of cultural appropriation, especially with the increasing popularity of Krampus runs. For the last episode of this season, and 2018, I wanted to align with this time of year and look in more detail at the Alpine folklore figures. But I didn't want to focus too heavily on the Krampus, as this has been discussed in so many other places. Instead, I was interested in focusing on the female Perchton characters, and how they fitted, or didn't fit, with ideas of the goddess and the witch. Joining me to discuss this subject is Al Ridenauer, the creator of the wonderful folk horror podcast Bone and Sickle, and an expert on this area of folklore. His book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, is a brilliantly in-depth study of these characters, conducted in the field, and illustrated with some truly amazing photographs of both the ceremonies and the costumes. It is a must-have title for anyone interested in this area. Over the past 25 years, Al has worked as an author, artist, journalist and more and since beginning his research on the material for his book on the Krampus in 2012, has swiftly become recognised as the leading English language expert on the folklore of this character. Hi Al, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hello. Hi, nice to have you here. Um, listeners to the last episode of the podcast uh, will know that I kind of teased this a little bit and said that we wanted to uh, cover a bit more of the festive folklore being December right now as we're recording this. Um, I have on the shelf next to me your most excellent book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, uh, which I have had for some time and I have to say is one of the most beautiful folklore books that I think I've had in my possession for some time. The photography and the artwork, um, as well as the text, is just fantastic. So I would recommend that anybody has a look at that. 
Um, but what I don't want to talk about very much on this episode is Krampus. Um, and that's not through a lack of interest. It's exactly the opposite, in fact. It's that um, I think Krampus is being discussed and seen uh, in so many places at the moment that actually to just regurgitate that information is probably um, not going to get us as far as I would like. Um, but I can't not mention it at all. So can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in the figure of Krampus and maybe also from there why you think everybody else has become so interested in Krampus and, and how it's being appropriated in lots of other countries other than the Alpine areas now? I, I, it's, it's, it's very different, of course, how there's been a rebirth of interest in the Krampus in Europe and then, uh, and then also well, in German speaking Europe, and then also in the U S when those two, the, the embrace of the figure is very different on both sides, uh, the uh, in uh, honestly, I think the uh, the uh, American English speaking embrace has even pushed the uh, the uh, European uh, revival somewhat. Uh, in the U.S., the figure's been embraced as a sort of way to reinvent the holiday, uh, a sort of alternative uh, uh, way to celebrate, and, and 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 a lot of Americans even see the figure as kind of a uh, a slap in the face of the old Christmas the parent, their, their parents brought them, and so very kind of sort of punk rock attitude sort of the whole thing. When in fact, they you know in Europe, the, it's a it's a it's a tradition of very conservative Catholic regions. So uh, and, and that's where it's been preserved. And then uh, this added this idea that it's a new revolutionary uh, subversive somehow thing has uh, not only uh, not only taken root in the U.S. but I think. Uh, the, the European tradition has been influenced by is starting to be influenced by our horror movies and our take on things, and they're, they are losing a little bit of touch with the old, the old meaning of the of the uh, of the customs. But uh, so 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 yes, this idea that of reinventing Christmas, and uh, at the same time, these people these people I live in Los Angeles, so we're full of people who want to reinvent culture, reinvent culture every four years anyway. But uh, you know, I do see these same people coming returning year after year to the Krampus events that we put on, you know, I think hungry for their own tradition regardless. So uh, whether or not it's as revolutionary as they'd like it to be, I, I don't know. <laughs> do you think as well that there's a, there's a lot to do with the more general interest in folk horror as a theme now? I mean, if, if you think about um, your podcast, Bone and Sickle, which again, people if they don't listen to it need to go and listen to because it has a really really strong folklore as well as folk horror coverage um you've been discussing these ideas about the old celebrations and the returning of old celebrations and old folklore so do you think there's a general kind of revival in folk horror itself that has a lot to do with this too uh, yeah certainly and the sort of hunger for ritual um People don't find ritual in the churches anymore, so they're looking a little further back. And we have we haven't you know we have this constant pagan revival going on. Um, you have you know you have the Edinburgh Fire Festival, but we in the U.S. I, I was associated with people who started the Burning Man Festival, where a, a 
huge sculpture like something like the Wicker Man is burned every year, and that thing is a, a very, very a big deal on the West Coast in certain subcultures. So I, I think I think it's this idea of returning to ritual, this hunger, and uh, the, the just the uh, the folk horror genre is something that's I think also just as a cinematic genre has really been rediscovered with things like The Witch coming out and. Uh, I, it's, it's, it seems it's. I do think that uh, that that it has fed into it. Although I honestly think that the Krampus uh, revival started, I would say, in the early two thousands, and I feel that the folk horror thing kind of got going maybe a little later, got a little traction a little later. Yeah, I guess I get, and I guess that kind of uh, interest in the Krampus probably fed into it at this time of year, certainly as well. So. How did it work for you? How did you become interested in not just the Krampus, but some kind of Alpine lord more generally? Well, um, I uh, my family was German. We definitely didn't have this tradition, and our family weren't even from that part of Germany. Um, and that's it's died out in the regions where my family came from. But uh, I so anyway, I ended up learning German, studying German uh, in school, and then uh, went studied in Germany in Berlin. For a year, and at the time, uh, this is quite a long time ago. And I remember being uh, around Christmas, seeing these beautiful uh, chromolith prints of devil heads appearing uh, next to the Christmas uh, items in, in various stores. And I didn't really know what it was about, but I, I bought one, thinking it's a lovely print. Took it home, put it on my fridge, and I think around the same time, I was uh, reading James Fraser's The Golden Bough and reading about these creatures with bells and whips and. In his book, the name Krampus isn't actually ever used because that kind of was standardized a bit later. But uh, I think I started putting it together back then, and this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. And then as the imagery started to circulate more, um, there's a Chicago art collector, post, uh, postcard collector, Monty Beauchamp, who published a few volumes with those images. And then those caught my eye and caught the eye of a lot of people online. And from there, the people started uh, circulating videos of, of the actual events in Europe. I think a lot of folks, when they first saw those postcards, just thought, oh, this is an interesting little folk, folklore illustration. They didn't realize that these were enacted customs. So the, the uh, seeing the Krampus, uh, Krampus runs and so forth online piqued my interest. I decided I have to experience this, and I started doing more and more research to see what which areas seemed most traditional, and that would and that actually tends to mean the rowdiest, which I thought would be fun, too. I wanted wanted a little more full-contact Krampus when I went there, so I ended <laughs> up uh, real, uh, realizing that the uh, Gestein Valley, which is about an hour and a quarter uh, south of Salzburg, was like ground zero for traditional Krampus, and making it, made it not making a trip over there. I hadn't started my book at the point at that point, but I was definitely had an open eye and was making some contacts, and then followed up uh, more intense actual work on the book a, a couple of years later, or a year later. Yeah, and it can be a dangerous game as well, can't it? Um, kind of visiting some of these these rituals firsthand as well. I mean, they, they some, some are, as you discuss in your book, geared more towards the tourist trade and, and are a little bit uh, lighter on their touch, perhaps. But when you get into the kind of deeper regions, they can become... a quite a dangerous affair well yeah the the region i'm talking about i wouldn't say dangerous but there are yes there absolutely there's a, a east tyrol is uh, known for being especially uh, uh fueled by this kind of crazed 
alpine machismo. Uh, it's very, very uh, full, full contact there. In fact, it's the towns of Matrai and Linz are towns where they actually discourage uh, tourists from visiting, and there have been a lot of injuries there. It has a very different uh, feel there than in other parts of the country. The Gastein Valley, where I went, is it's definitely uh, uh, unchoreographed and very spontaneous, and and but not not with the sort of uh, uh, head injuries that the try is is known for. So, I would I would like to move on from the Krampus to uh, look at another element of this folklore, which which I guess is sim- has similarities, but but also has differences. Um, and what I'd like to discuss for for this interview really more than the Krampus is the figure of um, Perchter. Um, and I apologise for my pronunciation, which will will not be correct compared to yours, I'm sure. Um, but what I'd be interested in looking at as a starting point, if we may, is is just to clear up any distinction between. Uh, perched as a character and perched den, perched ten, excuse yeah. me, um, the, which, uh, which is more Krampus oriented, isn't it? Yeah, it. Uh, this everything we'll be discussing from here on out is uh, much of it is up for grabs. Um, the uh, history with the uh, Persh and Perchten goes much much further back, and it's a little, and it's, it's by that nature it ends up being very spotty. So uh, the Perchten. Uh, a perched it is uh, is uh, many different things. It's uh, it, just to be at the simplest. I would say it's an alpine spirit that's associated with the uh, winter. Uh, so again, it's the same regions as the uh, Krampus tradition, and uh, usually uh, it's uh, it's 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 an ambivalent spirit. But most most of the writing about it tends to show that it was more feared than uh more maleficent than anything else malevolent than anything else um the um so the Persian are uh, let, let me let me start with what they are now uh the Persian are figures associated with the uh, twelve uh the epiphany uh twelfth night and uh the period actually from uh, Christmas, the twelve nights from Christmas till Epiphany, but particularly with Epiphany, that's that's the sort of book definition. But uh, nowadays, uh, you will have it's just we have uh, people. There are Krampus runs that are also Persian uh, runs, and the costumes that you've seen, the sort of the image, the modern image of the of the Pers- is very much looks like the Krampus. Um, it's a fur uh, uh, cost. Uh, uh, a uh, performer wearing a animal hides and horns. There is a distinction. People will insist that the uh, Krampus only has two horns and the Parish has multiple horns, but this is kind of a later, uh, something that came later, and it doesn't really apply to all regions. And for, uh, the Gastein region, for instance, I was talking about, they actually use some of the same masks. So these, so the Parishian runs were, were, n- Really, the domain of uh, probably usually drunk uh, single men in their in their twenties and teenage boys, probably uh, sort of a nighttime activity uh, that would involve uh, costumes and dis- disguising yourself and uh, 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 running uh, around houses. It wasn't it, in the in the beginning. It didn't even involve uh, 
this nowadays uh, the person might do some sort of performance or do a song but it was uh, in earlier days they would throw rocks at houses and uh, uh, scare off the farm animals and things like that so these were like uh, nighttime activities by masked kids that could get away with stuff more or less and then so what's a sort of a easy way to understand the whole Kirsten Krampus relationship is uh, the uh, the the figure of the Nicholas the bishop the bishop Nicholas Saint Nicholas was added as a sort of chaperone figure almost because there was sort of a organic uh, need for these this sort of diversion in the winter but uh, this adding this sort of churchly uh, ecclesiastic uh, discipline in this sense and giving it the purpose of educating children kind of turned the whole thing around it made it more acceptable and uh, so for a, a long period in the eighteen uh, hundreds uh the Krampus sort of displaced the Perishton runs but as of late they have returned and i th i think it's uh really as a re as a sort of sort of an expansion of the interest in, in Krampus so so nowadays we have we if you like people you look at a photo of a Krampus or a Perishton i'm sorry the, the Perishton is the singular and Perishton is the plural so nowadays they seem very very similar but there are uh, if you go back into uh, to the 1700s, there's a lot of different things that went under the name Perston, including uh, uh, folk dancers who would perform with uh, sort of crowned hats, crowned with long rooster feathers and uh, costumes that are very uh, brocade, very ornate costumes that are probably inspired by Venetian carnival costumes, uh, jugglers and acrobatic feats were all, these were called considered Perston performers and uh, as, as Epiphany is the uh, official, is the well, I guess November 11th is the official beginning of Carnival, but uh, Epiphany was, I guess, the uh, official beginning of celebrations in, in those regions. Uh, it's kind of, they, they do sort of bleed in then into Carnival performers. So it could be anything from these rough, young ruffians running around at night with their faces blacked with soot uh, to the, these uh, sort of carnival uh, acrobats and performers. And then we also and there were also certain uh, luck bringing songs that were sung door to door, which, uh, you know, I think is sort of very reminiscent of what you were talking about in your uh, mummy episode or mummery uh, in New Newfoundland and so forth. Yeah, there are some uh, some interesting similarities there, aren't there? The, the blacking up of the face, the masks, the the guising element, the house visits. It, it's a common kind of theme in in this type of uh, in this type of folklore, I think. Yeah, and it uh, it's you know it's interesting. Um, you know the, the the face blacking. If just to go on a bit of a tangent, the face blacking, of course, it raises all sorts of sets off all sorts of alarms and flags and so forth. But um, I, I understand that in the context, the more I was, more I read about the Pashtun, um, there is an association between the, uh, the Pashtun and the dead. And uh, so I've seen a few sources, a few, uh, a lot of sources actually insisting that the blacking is supposed to represent the, the dead. It's also a matter. It's also a matter of a means of just disguising the uh, miscreants that are out and about yeah. and not wanting to be recognized. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, we even, you know, what's interesting is you even see in, uh, in Europe, uh, I noticed that under the Krampus masks, I was seeing people would black their around. You, you might expect they would black around their eyes or mouths because you could glimpse that through the holes in the mask. 
but they take their masks off, and I see their whole head is black. And I, I felt like this is, and I, I one one person confirmed this, one person denied it. I got sort of a mixed mixed response in this, but it seemed like it was a carryover from from the tradition of just blacking the face in, entirely. The Ruprecht figure who appears in uh, Protestant Germany and is similar to the Krampus in a way, also often would have his uh, face blacked with soot. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it is quite common. It, it's a difficult area in modern times because of there are a lot of sensitive issues surrounding, obviously, yeah, the blacking right. of the face. But I, sometimes I think, uh, and I fully understand those issues, but I do think sometimes people can be guilty of, of reading too much into the reasons behind some of these things. Or reading contemporary reasons into yes. historical cases. Yeah, uh, exactly. The other thing I noticed is... Uh, there's a, there are characters so in these, I'm, I will, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Krampus because sure. traditions get really muddled uh, in a lot of cases. So the old Nicholas plays where the Krampus first appeared in the 1700s, there's an assortment of characters and one of the characters that uh, was often present was a uh, Smith character, a blacksmith character. And he had a sort of an infernal quality also. And, you know, that's, so you can, look at the blacking there even as a sooty sort of sooty and uh, hell quality hellish uh, quality too yes yeah and that that is another a common reading of it i think isn't it um so going back to the um perchton uh, yes, I have. I addressed your. I don't want to answer your question all about the Frau Yes, yeah. Let us let, focus in a little bit then on yes, Frau Perchter as as the the main focus of of this uh, yeah. tradition, perhaps. So Frau Perchter is uh, is a. I, I I'm hesitating here because there's so much debate and there the. It, uh, the world of the internet wants to call her a goddess, and I'm going to say she's more of a fairy uh, character um, who is associated with winter, associated with uh, domestic oversight, orderliness of the home, associated with uh, females, uh, especially unmarried females. So this could be the daughters, uh, it could be the house, the house servants, and also with children, uh, and uh, particularly associated with spinning. And um, so her, let's, I'm going to I'm going to talk about the name too because it's an odd name to start with. Sure. Um, the name is uh, comes from an old High German uh, phrase, "Gibbetenacht," which means uh, the night of shining or manifestation. Uh, that's led to some, uh, I think, misunderstandings about who this character is. Uh, so you'll often see Frau Perchte, uh referred to as a goddess of light or the shining one, uh, but it seems more likely that uh, the, it's this. I, I believe that was old German phrase was a, a way to refer to Epiphany as uh, the night when Christ was manifest to the uh, to the world, or uh, so it has to do with that sort of manifestation. I think so. Basically, she's named after the. Uh, a day that she's associated with. So you could kind of look at her name as uh, sort of like Father Christmas is an embodiment of a, of a date. Uh, she's Lady Epiphany. And this is like one way she was treated in the historical record. Um, but obviously, what does that have to do? What is that, so what does this have to do with the young ruffians and the jugglers and the uh, dancers and singers of luck-bringing songs? Um, 
there are questions whether they are actually related at all or if these are just uh, different figures and customs that were bound up in a, the, just the date itself. So, um, but the, uh, the thing that, uh, the other thing that ties the, uh, the Krampus and the Fraperste together is this, uh, what I was mentioning, the oversight of the children and right behavior and orderliness. Uh, and then, you know, if you think about it, we have Nicholas, Nicholas and day the 6th, December 6th and the Krampus. And then, and then a, a month later you have January 6th and Fraperste and the figure was said to visit homes in the same way and meet out uh, punishments and sometimes rewards. She's actually more associated with punishments than, than reward. Um, so, and, she, and she's de depicted, there's a, a woodcut from 1750 where you see this ugly sort of hag-like character wearing the same sort of basket on her back with stuff full of children in the, in the same way as the Krampus. So that character, Frau Perster herself, as a, in, apart from all of these other uh, performers uh, and uh, <laughs> roustabouts that are out at night, she, in that role as a sort of punisher uh, and enforcer of order, is uh, probably closer to the Krampus than, than anything. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point, which I'll, I'd like to come back to in, in a minute, if we may. Um, but does she have a kind of overarching role within the culture of this area is it purely as a punishment giver or is it is her role contested in different areas for example well it seems to change over the centuries um if you go back to the 10th and 11th century uh she is a well, she's equated with uh uh the goddess Holda or Hola, Hola, who's as in the Grimm's fairy tales, but their version of the goddess Holda, um, who is a you know a, a, similarly as a figure of, associated with the winter, associated with children and animals, and also the hunt. So she's been equated with uh, Diana, also nocturnal hunt uh, associations with the uh, dogs. Uh, Holda would appear with dogs, and in a few cases, uh, Perista would too. So this, uh, there are references uh, that various clerics are writing about uh, women who would claim to travel with uh, Diana or Holda, and then later this text was modified to include Perista on the winter nights uh, with uh, a company of spirits. Uh, so she she kind of begins like sort of a a, a witch like character or a part of a, a host of. Uh, of uh, supernatural travelers, nocturnal travelers, and uh, this you, you mentioned the kind of similarities with Krampus, with the basket on the back, for example, and that sort of thing, and the fact that she does meet punishment as well. Can you talk a little bit about? There are some more unpleasant aspects, aren't there, to her character? I'm thinking of things like the belly slitting, for example. I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, <laughs> yes, tell, tell us a little uh, bit about that because that's that's a good one. Yes, you'll, you'll see her referred to as the belly slitter sometimes. Um, that's She has a very sort of trademark way of dealing with... Uh, the particular thing she would be upset about was if the flax had not... The spinning of the flax had not been completed by Epiphany Eve. And uh, were she to, if she found that it wasn't, the traditional punishment would be to slash open the belly of the 
woman, a young woman who should have been spinning, and gut her and fill her with debris, straw or rocks or snow, and then stitch her back up with an iron needle. The iron needle is almost always part of it, too. So sort of an, I guess, homegrown taxidermy sort of thing. <laughs> but she also, um, there's another, um, so, uh, oh, what's interesting is uh, there are this this punishment has given rise to this like, interesting iconography. Um, there's a town in uh, Austria called Rauris where um, they have these um, they have these costumed uh, costume performers that uh, come around on Epiphany Epiphany um, who are called uh, these are actually this is actually this kind of character is one of the best links between these uh, costume night visitors and the uh, sort of folkloric figure that we I'm just been describing. So these people dress. Uh, uh, they call them Schnabelpersten, which means beak or no beak Pershten. And so they look like birds, actually. And one of the things they carry, and they come in into this look to see if the house is clean. And um, actually, they're kind of they end up messing up the house because they have a sort of playful, mischievous spirit, like the Krampuses. Um, so they have these; their heads look like giant birds. They have uh, sort of their sort of hinged masks with uh, looks like a beak. And then, well, they carry brooms. But the other thing they carry is these oversized uh, replicas of the giant scissors made of wood. So, and that's, I think, our, that's a reference to the, the belly slitting. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention was the other punishment she's uh, associated with uh, is uh, stamping on children. Um, there's, uh, there's a, uh, let's see, in Grimm quotes, uh, Jacob Grimm has, uh, I wanna, wish I could find the quote, it's... Um, it's from, it's in Middle High German, uh, the Stempe is from the, the word for stamp, and uh, it's, it's a uh, poem that uh, is, let's see, I think it's, uh, the Stempe is uh, from, sorry about this, uh, it's 50, yeah, 1350, and uh, it's a, uh, uh, something a father says to, this, in this case it's not a girl, it's the son, but he's warning the son on Epiphany if he doesn't eat the entire meal as he's supposed to, that the stempa, the stamper, will come and stamp on him. <laughs> so, and in some reasons, you still have the character that, for all other purposes, sounds like Fersta that comes around on that night, who who is uh, it's all about stamping on the, the poor kids. Do you, do you think there's an element here of the kind of, and you find this in folklore a lot, of this kind of. Uh, you must be good or or you must uh eat your meal or do your chores or whatever or and then insert threat here this kind of um the belly slitting and the and the stamping element do you think they come from this kind of folkloric bogeyman warning yeah, sort of thing yeah oh, absolutely yeah. I, I just having been so immersed in this figure for a while it i it really I, people ask what the Krampus is, and usually the shortest answer is it's a boogeyman. It's a, it's just a bugaboo used to, uh, to just to get the correct behave, the desired behavior yeah. out of children. Yeah. The, uh, the one of the the character that I mentioned earlier, who's depicted with the basket full of uh, children, it's a, a it's like broadside that was dis- distributed at carnival. Uh, her name they call her the Butzenbersch. Uh, it's called the Beersch in this case, but it's a Butzenbersch and Butzen is uh, that's uh, a, a word that's used in a lot of formations that it is related to our boogie or uh, uh, you know, as in like our bugaboo or boogie. It's, it's etymologically related. 
So, I mean, it, it is what she is. She, she, these, both of these characters are simply uh, boogeymen or, uh, I don't know, I think you, the English, you, English may have a, use a slightly different term, but we boogeyman is what we would say in American English. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, very similar here too. Threat figures, uh, or they uh, Kinderschreckfigur, and the child fear figures is what they call them in German, but always such a practical, concise, and explicit uh, language. Yeah, and it puts me in mind of a lot of the kind of traditions and folklore that come out of Iceland as well at this time of year. That's that's very strong in these kinds of um, well, yeah, uh, characters yeah, the, too. Uh, really, I don't really. Yeah. I'm not good on Icelandic pronunciation, but uh, she seems like as if she's related also. Yeah, sort of giant ogress. Yes, yeah, I, I think there probably are similarities there. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier on about the um, connections between Frau Perchta and. Uh, the mythology of the wild hunt um i mean that's something that i've covered uh way back in the first season of the podcast right. obviously with with reference to my research on black dog folklore um and the connections between that and the wild hunt the the mythology associated with the wild hunt kind of is is very strong teutonic mythology and and spreads out from the kind of area that we're finding um, Perchden and the Krampus and others. So, what what's the connection there? How does that fit into this? Oh, it's uh, it's it's absolutely related. Um, one of the tales that's told about Perchde uh, involves uh, figures called the Heinchen, which is actually it's also a word for cricket in German. But uh, they are uh, the uh, souls of unbaptized uh, children, uh, specifically unbaptized children uh who uh they're also sometimes they were it was said that they, they would appear like will-o'-the-wisps uh manifest that way but she was uh she would lead lead these lead these ghostly children through the through the lands uh at this time of year in the winter and the same story is told about about uh, holda too having charge over these children that are kind of in this uh between world they haven't they haven't been christianized because they didn't you know they didn't receive the their the christening and but they're uh they shouldn't be going to hell either so they're in this sort of wandering limbo so you have this that association with with the you know these spirits of dead children and i think um also then this the, the wild hunt is more more generalized but you also see i mean there are also stories of uh holda holda and both holda and, and Pesto were sometimes said to live under underground uh the the uh, venusberg myth that wagner wrote about that and tannhäuser was associated with uh that's uh also there are versions of that where it where it's holda and so there are spirits of the dead or or the fairy folks and we, we know those are also re- sort of interchangeable at times so but yes be having charge over a sort of uh, ho- a ghostly horde is uh, it's common to, to both of those figures so what, what's the connection here between the two? I mean, you, you spoke a little bit about um, the Grimm brothers um, and and obviously Holder or Holler in, uh, is a figure within their writings. Um, how does this connection work with um, Perchta? Uh, between Holder and Perchta or mm. between the Wild Hunt and this, this figure? Um, well, no, between between Holder and and Perchter, they they're not inter- interchangeable, are they? They're they're, they're well, more connected. They're figures? actually the Holder and Perchter are actually some folklorists will even hyphenate them, uh, and I ended up doing that in my book, Holder Perchter, because it's 
it seems that it's really more just a regional a name a name difference in some cases there are similar stories uh where you uh there's stories with hold as i mentioned pastor leading the heimsch and these and infants so there's stories also with hold doing exactly the same thing and so a number of stories where they're it, all but for the name that they're the same story so in it, it's more in the uh Alpine regions, it's Pest, and then you go uh, you go further north into the regions that became Protestant, and, and it's it's Holda, and then there are other other names for the figure further north. It, it's I, there's I don't think I reproduced my book in my book, but there's a there's a great map that's uh, just color coded, and it shows basically the same sort of winter uh, winter fairy figure or goddess figure uh, with the various names, and Pest covers all of Bavaria and all. Uh, Eastern Austria, and then you start seeing uh, Holder is a lot of the rest of Germany. Okay, so same same root figure, but different naming conventions yeah, in, in different, different areas. Slightly different associations. Uh, Holder is not really as menacing as as uh, as Pershta, and not associated with punishment in the same way. Uh, I, I think people that want to make a case for Holder being the shining one or a, uh, uh, a more benevolent goddess figure make a better case than, than the association with, with Pershta. And Pershta has an association too, doesn't she, with, with witchcraft and, and with the figure of the witch. Now, is that because of the punishment element or is there a different connection there? No, I, I think it's because uh, of, uh, well, it's a couple of things. I think the, the you know, the, the clerics that were trying to stamp out uh, pagan superstitions were particularly, uh, they sort of demonized her harsh somewhat because it was such a struggle to rid the people of their, their old practices. One of the practices was leaving out uh, food offerings for her, and then particularly on the Twelve Nights and or on Epiphany in, in particular. Um, there's uh, stories, let's see, there are, are uh, in various um, books of penance, there's various penances listed for that crime of leaving out a, a, a table called a, a, a Peshtentish, a table for table for Peshta on, on those nights. Um, so there's the sort of, I think, the clerical disgust with just the the belief in this uh, being. And then also, I, I guess, there is the uh, there was a superstition of uh, night traveling, um, in the notion that uh, people, you know, the women, women in particular, would travel at night in sort of in their sort of sleep state to the to these you know nocturnal revels uh and it, it uh of, of worms uh, in the 10th century wrote about that and he was he would he used the word uh diana as a leader of these uh gatherings uh you know diana was considered a queen of witches at a certain point and then uh Pashta gets substituted later a, a later editor uh edit, uh inserted Pashta and, and, and with a uh, a insertion clause, as the people call her. Uh, of course, all these clerics wanted to Romanize everything because that was their up their, their training and the language they wrote in. But uh, I, I think for they re- they treated them more or less all as interchangeable. So, so is is there a big fear of witchcraft in the Alpine areas at, at one point that makes this association and brings Perchter into the equation? Well, I'm, yeah, uh, the. Uh, the which uh, the witch's hammer was uh, written in the Alps. The, uh, w- the sort of set off the whole witch persecution. Yeah. Uh, thing in the 1400s that was uh, that was uh, 
began in the Alps, and uh, I, there was uh, some. I remember there were uh, there were a number of uh, ecclesiastical conferences where this was sort of the the latest greatest thing the church had to deal with, and and it sort of spread from the Alps outward, uh, in, uh, in especially into Germany. Um, so, and you still see in uh, in the Italian Alps, there's still uh, there's still a practice of uh, burning an effigy of a witch uh, on Epiphany, also. So this fear that witches were afoot on on Epiphany, uh, you know, that that is another another point for the case that uh, you know Pershta was should be considered uh, should be associated with, with witchcraft. There's a couple of other points that I'd like to pick up on based on some of the things that you said. Um, you mentioned earlier about the spinning aspect um, of Perchter. Uh, and that's something that I've talked about as well before very, yeah. very briefly uh, in the episode on um, wool and spinning and weaving and all the folklore associated with that. Um, and there was a link that I made there, which which is not something that I know a great deal about, but I found very interesting, between the figure of Perchta, uh, or sometimes called Bertha, I guess, yeah. Uh, which, yeah. which kind of all links together, and this spinning aspect, um, and how that ties in with the figure of Mother Goose, which is a kind of storytelling figure, which is a completely different kind of character how does that all link together you know what's what's uh, sort of funny that yeah that that uh, uh i'm my uh, i'm spacing on the uh the french figure that that is supposed to actually come from but uh one of the uh points i've seen made about about the uh, why mother goose why was it a goose to start with uh there's an association i guess between the goose's large foot and the treadle that's tread on in order to spin. Yeah. So yeah, and then I I think uh, associations have further been made then with the this that aspect of Persta, the 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 stamping aspect, the stempa or the tremble uh, uh, character the, as sort of an alternative name for Persta. So uh, that's uh, the, I don't I didn't ever find anything really you know the the idea of the fates and spinning there didn't really see that. Seems to be an association between spinning and witchcraft that is absent with Persia and Holda, but uh, uh, the goose, the goose foot, uh, which and then again also kind of brings to mind the uh, the one the one odd foot that devilish characters are supposed to have, whether it's a, a cloven hoof or in some cases with Persia, you, you, uh, there's associate there's stories that she has one. Uh, Goosefoot. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I I guess that really, it all kind of at first examination all sounds rather tenuous, but I guess there's an underlying trope here of of the one large foot, for example, which with with a lot of things within folklore, you find this one underlying theme that then goes and gets included or mapped onto other characters or other aspects and then it all yeah. starts to become interlinked and i guess maybe that's and what's happened here you see it over and over and as tenuous as it may seem the pattern repeats enough and it's hard it is hard to ignore yeah exactly I, the devil, asymmetry being of of the devil uh, not natural and or of the other world of even the fairy the fairy world it, it, it's you that it, 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 it keeps popping up 
Yeah, it, and I do you know what? Going back to right what we said at the top of this episode, I think that's one of the reasons why um, folklore has had this kind of resurgence and revival lately and why people are so interested in it. Um, and I, I don't know that it's any one topic necessarily. It's that whenever you start to explore it, and people who've been listening to this podcast uh, for a long time have commented on this, you start to explore these angles and you go, hang on a minute, wasn't there an episode about 14 ago where something yeah. very similar was mentioned? And suddenly everything starts to tie together. And you go into the kind of the the ideas that Jung and others spoke about a kind of, this kind of collective memory or the folk memory collective subconscious whatever you want to call it that's what ties all of us together in some way and that's why these things just kind of become oh that's really interesting there's a link here and a link here uh, I I don't know do you agree yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think, that it's a language of images, of pictures, a goose foot or a, a spinning wheel uh, that, you know, it, 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 it's not language bound, really. So no, absolutely. it may show up in a different way in another story, but it can't help but pull pull together the threads so to make a bit of a plan here, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I guess this is something that uh, that... I've explored before with the work on the uh, on the motif of the black dog as well. It's this idea of symbolism, and uh, symbolism is a language all of its own. And then meanings become fluid over time as symbols start to uh, mean something else to other people within a changing culture. And borrowed with a completely different, uh, given assigned a different meaning too, but something is powerful in the symbol. Uh, I guess, I mean, the sort of the same way the Krampus has uh, been assigned a, a new meaning in the kind of rebirth, but the symbol is powerful apart from the interpretation in a sense. It's something, there's something compelling about the, the image itself. Yes. The, yeah, there really is. And that's why the symbol carries on and it gets interpreted or adopted yeah. in different ways over time. Yeah. Another aspect of, of, uh, Percher that you mentioned that just go back to in a little more detail as if I may is particularly at this time of year being a kind of festive time um, and you spoke about the food aspect uh, food is very important at this time of year I guess in kind of Christmas yeah, epiphany how does that work it's what's what's interesting is uh, you know uh, there's the association between remembering that Epiphany is a, a, the beginning of Carnival in some regions, there's an association between greasy foods as and uh, and uh, the, some of the foods that you would, especially that we would uh, make for pasta are, are greasy uh, dough, fried donut type things. And that's also associated with Carnival. And we, we've always learned, we've been taught, or the common understanding is, well, this is because uh, butter and fat was banned during the fast, that to come so they would use that all up but <laughs> the, there's a completely different rationale assigned to it with Pershta. um you were supposed to eat these gre- greasy foods because her knife would slip off your belly or would make your belly greasy in some in some <laughs> way that's a you know this is maybe what's called i guess a backwards formation or a folk etym- etym- uh, folk explanation for it but <laughs> the image of greasy foods is associated with her she also is uh She's also uh, there's a, a sort of porridge that's called Peshta milk or milk you know milk uh, milky porridge for Peshta 
that uh, was made. And then these, uh, you know, it's a, you have these this similar, you have stories of these uh, Pershton tables that were set out way back in the, <clears throat> the 10th and 11th century and in already, and then all the way up into the uh, early 20th, and I, I, I doubt it's practiced anymore, but into the 19th and 20th century, Pershton milk was uh, set out <clears throat> overnight, left for uh, Pershta, who would visit, you know, as an invisible figure, not as a costume figure, <clears throat> and then um, if the spoon had moved, there would be there would be a, a different fortune telling associations with how the if the anything seemed different about the uh, Pershing milk or if it, when it was left out. It was also left outside sometimes <clears throat> because of course you uh, they, they, the image of these spirits flying overhead would be left in trees or on roofs, and they might uh, as they fly over they notice oh there's a a tasty bit of porridge. It's a good house. We'll bless that house. <laughs> that, that, that's really interesting. Isn't it? There's a number of aspects you're looking at for the same character here of, of um, <coughs> where food is important. If we think about this time of year, there's obviously the traditional within the um, beliefs of the figure of uh, St. Nicholas or Father Christmas or Santa Claus or however you want to describe it. There's this element of leaving food out for a visitor uh, as, as a... I always remind, I always remind uh, when I do talks about the Krampus and I end up t- touching on Pierce also, I always remind kids of that, or audiences, that, listeners, that it is, it's very likely related to the, that offering for spirits like Pierce <laughs> this the milk and cookies for Santa. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And there's that element, isn't there? There's the offering of a, a gift, an act of kindness, but then... Well, the other... Our, our, uh, our, the, 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 the uh, mumming or the book play traditions uh, and caroling the Russian Kolyada, the gift to, or the, even the uh, Krampus and Pariston troops visiting homes, there's the same idea that you, they're, in, they're impersonating the spirits and they should be paid with some kind of food or drink or something too. So it's uh, another kind of offering, actually. Yeah, yeah, there's this, there's this gift and offering. But then you, you mentioned two others there as well, which also have, uh, um, different folk elements to them so there's the porridge and that's the act of divination with the spoon and that's very strong within within uh seasonal folklore is things that you can do as an act of divination to be able to find something out so that's a separate element entirely and with with food a lot too because uh, for epiphany there uh there's the idea of the uh the king cake uh that's a in in the u.s in new orleans they still have that custom where Something is baked into a cake, and whoever finds it, it, it foretells different things for different in different interpretations. But e- eating the food is itself ends up being a sort of divination. Yeah, yeah. So that's the second or, or element. Out. Yeah, and then there's a third element here as well with the greasy food, and that's some kind of protective element. So, as, yeah. so you're gifting food or you're using food as an act of divination, or you're using food to protect yourself from an evil spirit, and all of that associated with one character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Okay, uh, one one last aspect then, uh, before I let you go, and that is we've spoken about this as being an, a tradition within the Alpine culture, uh, geographically, but we've spoken about some very strong associations with folklore in other areas. So does this tie in uh, to other countries? You've already mentioned Italy, and I know that there's a connection there, isn't there, with with character in Italy. Are there others too? Uh, yeah. In 
Baba, with uh, Baba Yaga because uh, parts of Austria also border uh, border cultures that that have that figure. And uh, one of the co- oh, I have a dog barking. <laughs> That's sorry. <fine. laughs> Shall I go on? Yeah, no, no, carry on. It's fine. Okay. Uh, one of the uh, uh, one of one of the uh, one of the for instance one of the common attributes that Baba Yaga and Persta have uh, is uh, the iron iron nose. Baba Yaga, I, I, I understand, is often described as having a, a nose made out of iron, and that's pretty common for uh, Persta. Also, her the emphasis on her nose is, uh, and I think this, this some writers say this is like the, the beginning of uh, the notion that the witch has a certain kind of nose. But she's uh, often given an iron uh, an iron nose. There's a there's a in, from uh, 1415. There's a woodcut from a book called Flowers of Virtue in English, um, where she, there's a, a image of her, and it she has a like a, a very much like a bird's beak. That and it what's interesting is it looks like it's a masking figure that's been rendered. It doesn't look like it's supposed to be the actual folkloric figure herself because there's sort of holes in the mask what look like holes eye holes in what appears to be a mask and then the uh, figure has these sort of gloved hands too that don't look like human hands but the the nose is really prominent and and you know that's that seems to be one of the things that suggests an association between baba yaga and and uh, persta um and then yeah as you mentioned in italy there's uh, la Befana, who's the epiphany witch who is clearly uh, clearly related to this uh, this sort of uh, family of, of folklore, and that extends all the way down you know uh, down to Rome. Uh, it's strong in Venice and, and Rome, and then in the, the, up in the further up in the Alps that are bordering more on the region we're talking about. There's there's a tradition of, of witch fires or uh, effigy fires. So yeah, in, through Italy, you seem to have a figure like that too. If people want to look into this more, there's some really great areas there to explore, isn't there? There's the links between this character and the broader traditions of the Krampus and other uh, Christmas and Epiphany traditions. There's the links between Perchda and Perchden um, and the figure of the witch as well. There's some really strong connections there for people to look into if they want to explore it more. Al, thank you. That's been absolutely fascinating and a really good way to end this season of the folklore podcast and and um this time of year if people are listening to this when it first comes out obviously just uh having been through the festive period as this is released um you have your own podcast which i alluded to earlier bone and sickle um the website for people who want to look at that more is just boneandsickle.com. I would suggest that everybody, if they don't already listen, does that um, uh, because it really is uh, an interesting exploration into the links, as we've discussed today, between folklore and other aspects of uh, the kind of folk horror genre. Um and it's also really, really nicely put together and has an excellent soundscape and, and is a joy to listen to. Um, so do go and listen to that. Um, your book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, which I also mentioned earlier, uh, a, a great read at Christmas, but also a great read at any other time of year as well. Where should people go if they want to find out more about that, Al? Well, the book is on Amazon. The publisher is uh, Feral House, as in Feral Wolf, Feral House. Um, they can look get it there too, but any uh, any online bookseller would have it. Excellent. 
And what about you yourself? What are you going to be doing uh, as we go into 2019 to further your areas of research? Uh, I, I'm actually excited to uh, get through the winter. I mean, win my winter and I'm so immersed in winter folklore beginning in uh, late October that uh, I, I'm actually not sure what, what we'll be doing. I know there's a, a dragon episode I was considering, um, some folk ballads that I, I really left to I like to use folk uh, music in the show because it just it's, it's it fits the format nicely, and there's so many interesting folk ballads that uh, tie in with uh, th contempor contemporary uh, culture and themes in movies. And and my the sub the podcast also looks at uh, Gothic literature and and Victorian history. So uh, we'll have to see. I'm not quite sure where, where we're going with the show. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great to look forward to finding out where it is going. I'm looking forward to finding that out also. <laughs> I, I did very briefly appear on an episode on your answer phone. Maybe I'll uh, I'll come back in the new year and plague you some more with that as well. I think that may happen, yes. <laughs> uh, Al, thank you very much for coming on to the Folklore Podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, enjoy the rest of your festive period and your rest from the Krampus work. Thank you so much. It's, it's been great being on the show. I'm a long-time listener and really enjoy this show too. Thank you. My thanks to Al Ridenour for a fascinating and detailed interview on the Perchton figures. You'll find links to Al's podcast and book on the guests page of our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. And my thanks to you for continuing to support and listen to The Folklore Podcast. It has been a challenging year in some ways, as other demands on my time have meant that I could not devote as much time to research as I would have liked. But the podcast will be back in the new year for season four, and a new focus will hopefully mean that it is stronger than ever. You can expect more interviews from me, more extra content if you're a supporter on Patreon, and an exciting new field research project, which I hope will be immensely valuable to the area of folklore recording as a whole and with which you can all get involved. Thanks for listening. See you next year. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information. To buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.